Welcome to the FinTech Factor, the podcast for FinTech operators and executives to understand what it takes to stand out in a crowded industry. I'm Alex Johnson. Today's episode is about open finance. We are at an interesting inflection point right now. Open finance, the ability for consumers to share their financial data with third parties in order to enable and access new products and experiences, has gone from being a relatively obscure, slightly scary thing to do to something that tens of millions of consumers do regularly without really even thinking about it. That's a tremendous shift. And behind the scenes, there's been a lot of work done to enable that change. We don't have a regulatory mandate in the US to enable open finance. So that responsibility has fallen on the shoulders of private companies. And boy, have they taken on that task with enthusiasm. Over the past two decades, data aggregators like Yodli, Plaid, Finicity, and Amex have worked tirelessly to build access, with consumers' permission, to a very wide array of financial data, primarily bank deposit data, but increasingly lots of non-bank and non-deposits data as well. However, the way in which this access has been built has ruffled a few feathers, to put it mildly. Screen scraping, which is a very common method for accessing consumer permission data, causes all kinds of problems, from liability to security. And traditional financial institutions haven't always been willing partners when it comes to building direct integrations with the data aggregators. Which leaves us in a really interesting place today. Consumers like and depend on open finance. Fintech companies are similarly dependent on it to enable the experiences that they want to offer to consumers and to minimize switching costs. Banks are lukewarm on it, at best, with the more progressive ones recognizing that this is a trend they can't stop and that they might, I know this is a shock, be able to actually benefit from. And regulation, in some form, is coming to a theater near all of us very soon, courtesy of the CFPB's rulemaking on Dodd-Frank 1033. So the question I'm interested in is this. What path will open finance take from here, and how might that path resemble or differ from the development of similar open ecosystems in our industry's past? In today's episode, I talk with Jim McGatz, the newly appointed CEO of MX. We talk about the lessons Jim learned from his nearly two decades working at PayPal, the present and future of open finance in the U.S., and why choosing the side of customer value is always a winning proposition. So now, without further ado, I present The Fintech Factor. Jim McGatz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and congratulations on the new job. I appreciate that. No, it's exciting to be here. That's awesome. Well, we're going to get into MX and kind of what you guys are working on. But before we do, I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about your background. You spent nearly the last two decades in various leadership positions at PayPal, which is interesting to me because it actually overlaps almost entirely with my time working in fintech. And that's been a time of tremendous change to the financial services industry. And, you know, PayPal obviously played a key role in a lot of that. So I don't want to spend the whole podcast on this, but I was wondering if you could give us a bit of a tour of your time at PayPal and some of the things that you worked on. Yeah, so I I started out at PayPal in early 2004. And as many people that come into one of those type of organizations had a very nebulous role. Just like, join the team, we'll (laughs) figure it out. And really the focus started out for me around helping PayPal get into new geographical markets. So Mm -hmm. let's think of it from about 2004 to 2010, 
my job was to work with a small group of people that were really on the forefront of figuring out how PayPal would get into a specific market to support eBay. So if you, if you go back in early 2000s, eBay was trying to get into new geographies. Yep. PayPal was a payment mechanism. And my job was basically to be part of the payment company to the payment company. So mm -hmm. basically my job was to figure out you know, how do payments work in Germany? What's an ELV? You know, sure. What is cash payments look like in Japan? What are receivables and installments in Brazil look like? And how do we make the experience as indigenous and as impossible as we're going to new geographies? So mm -hmm. that spun into me leading what we call our payments as a service platform within mm -hmm. PayPal. So how people paid into PayPal, how people took money out of PayPal, the underlying plumbing, the relationships with Visa, MasterCard, the ecosystem, and did that for about 10 years. I then went over to Luxembourg, of all places, and that's where PayPal has its uh, European headquarters. Mm -hmm. And I was the payments lead out of Europe. And it just happened to be that that overlapped with PSD2 coming out. And so what it sort of spawned for me was an understanding and appreciation for open banking, as mm -hmm. we now call open financing. But open banking was something that... I sort of sat back and said, well, this would be really cool. And it could be the future. Sure, yeah. I just didn't know I'd move a job in doing it. But basically, when I came back from Europe in 2013, I came back to our corp dev folks and said, hey, I think this is something. Yeah. And they said, well, why don't you meet these two guys at Plaid? They're starting a company. And we ended up investing in them and had a very good, continued the PayPal was a good relationship with them. Yeah. And got a little bit of taste with them, with Yodely, we eventually invested in a company called Tink, mm -hmm. uh, which is over in Europe. Yep. And for the good part of the next phase of my career within PayPal was really around creating better experiences. Mm -hmm. We were coming out of our ownership of eBay as a separate company, a standalone company, and really thought about how we could just create better end and experiences and saw some of this emerging technology around open finance as a way and open banking as a way to create better experiences of if I'm adding my bank account, you know, how do I make it as seamless as possible? Sure. You know, if, if I'm paying with a bank account, we want to look up and make sure you have balance associated with it. As we offered credit, we would do transactional data in, insight and information on it. So I really saw that as sort of the next phase of where fintech was going. Yeah. And then over the course of the last five years, my job has been predominantly all the payment stuff I mentioned, but then it moved into a lot of partnership work. And, and mm -hmm. what I find interesting is, and we'll talk about how it's relevant to MX, but at the time, 2015, you know, PayPal was a bit persona non grata with the banking community. I remember that, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so a lot of work was done to really think about joint experiences. So sure. if someone's using their Citibank account on mm -hmm. PayPal, how do we make it a really great experience? Mm -hmm. And started just build trust amongst the banking ecosystem that we were an open platform. You could innovate on our platform. And I think really just created, from my point of view, really great end-to-end -end experiences around adding instruments and making sure that they worked. Yeah, no, that's outstanding. And to dive into a couple chapters of that real quick, because I do think, to your point, there are a couple of lessons it seems like you sort of learned at PayPal that are extremely relevant yeah. now as we talk about open banking and open finance. One of them is trust, right? And so it's hard to remember, but you know, 20 years ago, 18 years ago, 
buying stuff on the internet was very scary. And obviously, pioneers like eBay helped make it less scary. But just the fear of transacting in sort of this open ecosystem where you didn't know the other parties and like we were really worried about sort of fraud and just sort of the unknown, really. PayPal played a, a key role in sort of solidifying more trust in that ecosystem and making it feel safer to interact with. In fact, I associate a lot of the brand equity with PayPal with exactly that. What do you remember from some of those early days in terms of like building more of that trust, particularly as you like went out into new markets? Yeah. So I think as of last count, when I left a month or so ago, PayPal had about 30 million small businesses and yeah. merchants on its platform. Yeah. And I think you hit it on the head. What the company really strived to do was to be an enabler of commerce where transactions were typically hard to manifest themselves. Yep. And you rightly point out that there were these myriad of small businesses that back in the day selling things like Beanie Babies and whatnot. Yeah. And we felt that they had a rightful place in the digital economy or sure. at that point, the internet economy. I don't think we got to digital at that point <laughs> as we were going through it. And you know, a lot of times it's really around, you know, philosophically about democratizing experiences. Yep. And if you go back to those like early 2000s, the challenge that customers had, especially small businesses, they couldn't get a, a merchant account. Sure. They sort of sure. use the, the parlance of the industry. So it would be very hard for me as a Beanie Baby salesperson yeah, to yeah. say, hey, I'm a legitimate business and you should underwrite me to accept card payments or payments in general. Yeah. And so in many ways, what PayPal did was democratize those experiences with data, yep. with also some level of trust, yeah, as, yeah. as you rightly pointed out, yep. and in creating systems that you could trust and verify as you go through that. Yep. And I think that reciprocally had benefit of creating a lot more economic power through small businesses. And also, frankly, you look at bigger businesses where people wanted the convenience of using a PayPal account versus putting in your username, your card details as you go through this. And so it took a while, I think, to convince people within the broader banking ecosystem that we were a force of good, Yeah, right? Because a lot of people felt that, you know, the company was disintermediating, you know, we should own this relationship, you shouldn't exist, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, as you go through this. But I always feel like if you can demonstrate customer benefit and yeah. you're on the side of the customer, I've always told people when you're a customer advocate or you're someone that demonstrates customer benefit or anytime there's a situation that there's debate over what's the right thing to do, you, mm-hmm. you do what's right for the customer, you're undefeated in that argument. Right, right, right. That argument is undefeated it, over time. Yes, yeah. I, I, it's what whatever and oh in terms of the, the battle of <laughs> Arguments as you go through. Yeah, this. probably a trillion to zero. Yeah. 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 Um, no, that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that actually, because fast forwarding a little bit at your time at PayPal, it sounds like sort of the last chapter was around partnerships. Yeah. And I do remember a lot of sort of acrimony between PayPal and the banks, PayPal and the card networks. And, you know, I didn't quite remember this specific term, but the uh, open platform strategy that PayPal had that sounds like you sort of helped develop and oversee. Can you sort of explain like the roots of that? Like what was the nature of the problem that PayPal was having at that point? And what did you do from kind of a partnership, collaboration, open ecosystem perspective to help address that? Yeah, so coming out of uh, eBay, you know, the talk track amongst the chattering class, I'm not pointing to you, Alex. No, 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 People like you and investors (laughs) was that as an independent company, PayPal would probably survive no more than a year. Right, and right. that would be because 
you know, those within the ecosystem, whether they were banks, networks, fintech platforms, it could have been every three months there was the next one that was going to crush us. Yep. So that was sort of the existential statement that was out there. Yep. And I think beyond that, you know, we had with Dan Schulman came in, new CEO, and I think one of the things that he instilled in our organization was, I think, a soul of the organization about being a customer champion organization. And sure. I think that's something I go back to the undefeated thing. Yeah, if, yeah. if you're on the side of the customer, you can survive for a lot longer than 12 months. Yep. And you could actually make a lot of money through that. Mm -hmm. and, it, and those two are not two separate things, by the way, yep. as, as you work through that. And we talked a lot about you know, what were the things that were creating customer friction. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that created great customer friction was that when you use PayPal, we were steering you to use ACH or balance. Yep. And so we sort of looked at the problem statement in terms of we as an organization, you know, often talked about strategic moats, right? Yeah. And sometimes you're getting these sort of strategy conversations. What is our strategic moat? Yeah, yeah. And there had been historically an argument that the strategic mode of, one of the strategic modes of PayPal was ACH. Yeah, yeah. I.e. that we were one of the best at doing it. And because we were able to keep our costs down, that would be a strategic mode to invite in, uh, merchants to use our platform. Yep. Well, and I think there was some validity to that, but I think when we really looked about where we wanted to be as a customer champion organization, sometimes strategic moats work both ways, yeah. right? They prevent people from attacking you, but they also prevent you from expanding. Yeah. And we came to the conclusion that we needed to rethink about that strategic moat, and mm -hmm. we went to something called customer choice, which just from an experiential point of view, when you use PayPal, you would completely have your choice of what you wanted to use. Yeah. And you could do it in a way that was frictionless and there was going to be no steering as you go through that. Yep. And what that did was a, a lot of things. One was it reduced customer complaints. Yep. Okay. That was probably, you know, if you look at the top 10 customer complaints that we had at that time, four were some derivative of, of that experience. Sure. Two, what it did was it sort of signaled to the broader fintech financial institution ecosystem that PayPal wanted to be a, a player that worked in conjunction with them. And what we really, one of the other existential questions that we had, do we want to be a closed ecosystem or an open ecosystem? Sure. And do we want to basically create our own experiences and you have to come in directly into PayPal to utilize them? And I think one of the things that I continue to believe to this day is open ecosystems are better than closed yep. in terms of innovation and giving customers better experiences. And it proved out that to be the case because what we were then able to do is to work with your visas, MasterCards, your banks, you go across the world. I think we developed over 70 different retail partnerships yeah. that created better experience for their customers in terms of just simple things like adding your credit card, mm -hmm. adding your debit card. Uh, we enabled, it was funny, we were just talking in the hall with a woman who runs Visa Direct or used to run Visa Direct. Sure. And I think at that point, you know, PayPal started on its journey to create instant withdrawal capabilities through Visa Direct and, and Money Send at MasterCard, and then later the the real time payment uh, derivative that has been offered in different markets. But yeah. because we decided to go open, because we decided to give customer choice, the industry was much more willing to work with us because we all saw it was one plus one equals three to the X power as you sure. go through this. Sure. And so, great experiences like instant withdrawal or Visa Direct became part of our both Venmo experience and PayPal experience. And if you look monetarily, we did quite well monetarily from that. And, and I think the company's, it was my view, uh, is that probably continues to do very well from that experience. So it's a classic case of give people good experiences, they're going to pay you for it, mm -hmm. and everyone's going to win.
Yeah, no, it's. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I see that a lot in fintech, right? Where companies will get maybe too clever thinking about what their moats are, right? Yeah. And they'll do things that are sort of contorting themselves out of position to do something that's good for them, good for their competitive positioning, but takes it a little way away from the customer. And it, it sounds like the experience that you all had at PayPal was that you can do that for a time, but eventually the customer sort of gets tired of that contortion yep. and wants to like get the fastest path to what they're looking to accomplish. Yeah, I always say, you know, I say sometimes don't ship your org chart is like a motto from an organizational yeah, point of view. Yeah. Don't ship your complexity. Don't ship your strategic chessboard to the customer. So they need to understand that you're deciding to be this over here and that over there. I love that. And then they look at the ecosystem that you've created yeah. and go, why can't my experience work across the board? Such a good point, right? I mean, we work in financial services, so we can probably see like the fingerprints of strategy on like companies' products. Yeah. But you think about just a consumer experience in another field where you're like, why does it work this way? Yeah. And oftentimes it's probably because they're shipping their org chart, yeah. they're shipping their chessboard. Correct. That's a great point. Pivoting a little bit now to the present day and you joining MX, I want to dive into a couple questions about sort of your view and on the ecosystem, sort of how it's been shaped by your experiences. But before we get there, for those who may be listening who are still sort of wondering, can you just kind of very simply explain what does MX do? Yeah. So MX is in the mission of making people financially strong. Okay. And to do that, what we do is we look at what are stressors in people's financial lives. Mm -hmm. The number one stress that people have statistically is money. Yep. And we utilize data and insights to create better experiences for people to de-stress their financial lives. Mm-hmm. That's how I'd simply describe it as that's, we go through that. That's awesome. There are effectively three different lines of product focus that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, one starts, and they all nest on top of each other. One is we build connectivity, yep. data connectivity between institutions to help companies to get identification information about a customer. Mm -hmm. Secondly, that identification information can then be built to not only identify you, but to get insight about you. Yep. So a good example would be that we power a lot of PFM or personal financial management solutions yep. based upon that data. And then on top of that, we build and create banking apps mm -hmm. that sit on that data. So between our call connectivity data and then mobile are really the three main thrusts that we have from a product point of view. Got it. All sort of oriented around helping people sort of improve their financial. Exactly. Well. Awesome. That was a great elevator pitch. We yeah. we made it without having to take any extra time on the elevator. So I, I guess I'm curious. I mean, obviously, you've had a lot of experience working in the open banking, open finance space, going all the way back to PSD2 and your time in Europe. And you've evaluated and worked with a lot of the companies in this space. What drew you to MX when you're sort of evaluating the company from the outside? Obviously, I'm sure you were familiar with them, but like as you sort of got deeper into that process and were considering making the changeover to become CEO, what were some of the things that you looked at? What were some of the things that sort of drew you to the company? One is the mission. And again, it, it sounds somewhat cheesy to say, oh, the mission. Sure, or the sure. mission. But actually, it is the mission. And, you know, for me... There's a couple of things that motivate me. One is around helping people with their money. Mm -hmm. And two is around how technology can help them with their money as yeah. you go through this. And I had seen within PayPal, and I, it was almost like if you took the PayPal mission and the MX mission and you you know, asked the blind test which one was which, you'd probably get 50% one and 50% the other. Sure. They, were, they were pretty much different words. Mm -hmm. But same intent. You know, how do you help people be financially strong? How do you enable people and democratize financial experiences? And 
I was just, it felt very comfortable in terms of that overall mission. And then when you double click, you know, some of the history of the founders and Ryan and Brandon, Brandon DeWitt, yep. it's hard to not look at the company and go, I'm rooting for that company. Sure. Yeah. And that, so that just starts with that. I, and I feel like MX is a company that people are rooting for. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm rooting for it internally, but yeah. I say that people feel like, and I sort of thought of a world where MX didn't exist. Sure. Right. What if MX didn't exist? And I sort of saw where the world was going or has is going or and may go in terms of data. And I, I ultimately think, you know, data is the most important commodity yep. to empower financial services innovation. And I don't think we're there yet. And I worried about a world where there wasn't a company out there democratizing it and making it available. And you could think of the usual suspects of people that might win in that space. Sure. And not that they're not worthy people to work and partner with, but I'm not sure that a world where it was controlled by few would be a good place to be. Mm -hmm. And so as I got to know the team a little bit more and know the products a little bit more, I really thought that this is where the world's going towards. Mm -hmm. I juxtaposed my experience in really thinking about like scalable product experiences and what we did at PayPal. Yeah. And if I thought if we could create great experiences, marry the data and the insight and the capabilities MX had and make it scalable, I think we'd have a really good place to help the industry really move forward. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Speaking of moving the industry forward, one of the things that we like to talk about on this podcast is the value of sort of solving 100% of the customer's problem, right? It goes back to what you were saying about like always default to helping the yeah. customer and solving their problem. And I think a lot of times what you see, particularly in the world of fintech infrastructure, is that we build really cool tool sets or APIs or services that are outstanding, but by themselves don't necessarily address the full problem that you're trying to solve. And in your guys' case, because you're focused on helping consumers improve their finances and improve their financial health and their relationship with money, Obviously, data connectivity gets you a large part of the way there, and it is the foundation upon which all of this rests, but it isn't necessarily the last mile to getting there. So I'm curious if you can kind of share your perspective on beyond the data piece, which is obviously critical, what is that sort of last mile to addressing that problem? I think there's a few things. Just start with the idea that there isn't a central repository for people to get 360-degree access of information on my financial health, my financial situation, yours, Alex, as you go through this. And I go back to, if you look at my financial life as part of uh, my family growing up, we had one financial institution. That's where we went and sure. we interacted. I could go to a branch. I could talk to someone. That was the family bank. That was That's a good point. It was the family bank. Yep. And I remember you know, getting my first bank account, we marched down and got my bank account. And I can, I still, I, it's very funny. I still remember that bank. Like I remember so it's, funny, it's like yeah. a very vivid view in my mind of that bank. And now when I look at, and we were a family of six, I look at my family of four and I think about banking relationships that we have. And I counted and my kids and my wife may have others that I'm not aware of, but I, <laughs> I counted at least 15 different bank yeah. accounts that I have. Yeah. Now I'll sort of broadly say stored value accounts like Venmo or, sure. or uh, PayPal or Cash App. And in addition to that, we probably, then those are 15 different institutions. And then if you count things like different credit card relationships, you're probably up to about 21. Yeah, yeah. So there was no Mr. Paulino at the bank branch where you'd go and say, I need you to help me with my financial situation. And he sits down and says, here's where you're at. Right. It's totally disaggregated. And I think then if you take the corollary of that, 
Mr. Paulino had perfect information on the McGath family. Right. Right. And so he could make, and the bank could make decisions on me based upon that perfect information. Mm -hmm. And so the problem statement, I think, starts with how do you democratize 360 view of that particular customer? And I think one of the things that we're talking a lot about is how do you create a true financial identity of an individual? And obviously it needs to be permissible and customer consent as you go through this. Mm -hmm. But when you do that, then you're able to passport information much more seamlessly. It's yeah. like you go to the doctor and they're able to look up your records of somewhere else you went to. Yeah, yeah. You're pretty much relieved that I now have to go do another blood test to do that. <laughs> but, but that's effectively what we have today right. is that every time that I go to a new institution, you're asking me to draw blood to actually prove who I am and actually go through <laughs> that. But that's probably, the, that is the reality. That's a great analogy, actually. That's yeah. the reality of yeah. the situation. Sometimes KYC processes are that painful, actually. Right? Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so it starts for us about thinking, you know, how can we help mm -hmm. democratize access to that? And so we're, we're spending a lot of time on just building out plumbing. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound sexy, but it's pretty important. Plum, oh, totally. Plumbing to allow banks and fintechs to extract their data in what we consider a responsible manner, mm -hmm. best standards from a security and a compliance point of view. That starts it's sort of base. Yeah. And then secondly, you then look at once we create that connectivity, you know, how do you then sort of syndicate that data sure. into not only just, all right, I can give you tons of transactional information. One of the things that PayPal we had, we had tons of data. Yeah. We had something like 50 petabytes of data, which is a huge amount of data. But we weren't optimally set up to take that data because we didn't always know what it meant right. and actually do something with it. Now, mm -hmm. PayPal does a lot of great things with data, but the potential of that was infinitely higher than the reality of what we could do with it. Mm -hmm. and, and that exists all throughout the ecosystem. So what we really think about once we have the data is how do you make it insightful? How do you make it actionable? Yeah, yeah. And, and we all can look at things like our bank statements, our card statements, and we see data go through and we have no idea what that means. Yeah. And so that's sort of level two. And then level three is really then taking the insightful information and making it something that, you know, people can do something with. Yeah. yeah it's great to know that, you know, we spent $3,000 on travel last year. Right. That is data. That is insight. Yep. But what do I do with it? Right. Okay. It seemed like a nice vacation. We yeah. spent too much or little. And, you know, you know, we always had that family conversation. Can you believe how much we spent? And you're like, okay. Well, I just took there. the kids to Disney World. Okay, so well, I know exactly okay. what you're talking but, about. Yeah. But what do I do with that? Right. And what do others do with that? And I think we want to create a world where, again, there's this financial identity that's passportable. So people can have a better view of you and yep. you can have a better view of your 360 view. And I think it then spawns a ton of innovation. Yep. And you can think of just simple examples of where, as simple as if we all knew what my financial situation was, yeah. I would never go into overdraft because you'd automatically move money from my Wells account to my city account and it would right. automatically happen. Yeah. You think about bill payment. That's probably another thing that I scratch my head every weekend. I'm like, well, how? Like it's 2022. Why am I paying bills? Like, totally. it, it, can't you all talk to each other right. and figure this out for right, me? Right, right. But that's how it should be. Mm -hmm. And I think we want to be really at the epicenter of creating the platform that allows people to build that innovation. And that's why I said it starts with the data, starts with making it actionable, insightful. And then it's trying to teach people, here's the use cases that you can build on top of that. Sure. Yeah, and I, I guess on that front, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, 
it always seems like whenever we have these sort of unlocks from an infrastructure standpoint, one of the challenges is getting people to imagine what they can do with it, right? Yeah. Because that's just the nature of like any type of innovation, particularly on the infrastructure level is, well, like look at all these like primitives, these things that we have that we can now build with. And yet people kind of fall back on the same design patterns, the same sort of products that they're familiar with. So I'm just curious, how do you think about encouraging not only like innovation within MX, but innovation within sort of the broader ecosystem that's built around MX in terms of creating those experiences? Well, you know, any type of motivation is either fear or greed sometimes sure, as you go yeah. through this. And, and yeah. I, I, I could start with the fearful one, which I, I don't want to do, but I'm going to start with it. Others are going to do this. Right. It's inevitable. Like this technology is here. Someone's going to build Someone's going to do it. it. And, yep. and you can think of the usual suspects of people that have access to data or could get access to data to build this on. Yep. And so I won't name names. But I think the greed is not greed necessarily like, hey, you know, we can make a ton of money. It's really around, we should think about, we can create, for a lot of our customers, a better life, just based upon sharing this data together and sharing these insights. And I, I used the bill payment one. I yeah. can think of a simple example of authentication. If you presented to someone financial transaction information yeah. as an authentication piece, that's probably a heck of a lot more elegant way to remember who you are. And it could be done in a very friendly, fun way. So I don't have to go think about passwords. And I'm not calling about what's my password as yeah. you go through this. So it yeah. reduces customer friction as you go through this. And so I think we just need to think about the, and this is where I go back to, I go back to the PayPal days of, we had a choice to make yeah. on whether we wanted to go back to the old mode or the new mode. Mm -hmm. And to me, again, go back to what's in the best interest of the customers. How can we make their lives less stressful, less frictionful? Yep. And if you do that, and that's why I go back to the PayPal example that you talked about, Alex, you can make a ton of money here. We can yeah. make a ton of money as an industry if we're willing to let go of the old paradigm and be able to say, hey, what makes my customer the happiest? Totally. And I'll be, you'd probably be the same way. If I said to you, you never have to pay a bill again, never think about it. You'd probably like, sign me up for 50 bucks a month. Totally. I'm, I don't know what it would, that no, numbers, yeah. but you'd probably go. I absolutely would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But now that nobody makes money off bill payment. Right. But you just take something that is extremely friction filled and onerous chore and you say, okay, now I don't need to do that anymore. Yep. Those are the examples that aren't like, you know, this lightning strike moment of sure. some amazing innovation but actually, it's taking a friction point. And again, you sort of talked about, you look at Amazon, you look at Apple, you look at all these companies that have innovated. They've innovated on the edges. They haven't necessarily innovated. We continue to shop. Yeah. We continue to use a phone. Yeah, yeah. It's just they've innovated on the edges as they've gone through that. Mm -hmm. No, it makes a ton of sense. And I guess the other thing I wanted to ask about as it relates to like this broader ecosystem, and you have a really fascinating perspective on this given your history at PayPal, when you look at the development of like multi-party networks that have to work together but have sort of a coopetition to them, what I've noticed is that the early development of those networks is often a function of someone sort of driving a wedge in around customer value, right? We're going to solve this problem. And to your point, that wedge is undefeated. If you can yeah. offer more customer value, it's always going to be something that has a place in the industry. But I think the flip side to that, and I, I know you guys experienced this at PayPal, I think we're experiencing this right now with open banking and open finances. To do that, you also end up stepping on some toes and making some people uncomfortable, unhappy, and there's just a certain amount of sort of resistance to that. How, as it relates to like open banking and open finance, which in the US, unlike Europe, has been much more of a market-driven solution rather than a regulatory-driven solution, 
So a lot of toes have been stepped on. How do you sort of think about the next phase of open finance uh, in the U.S.? Is it like, what would you characterize it as? What are the sort of nature of the relationships and how you build sort of trust and almost like a sense of equilibrium within that ecosystem? There's a lot there in that question. I know, I know, I know. But but let let me try to answer it. And I think, again, start with customer, work backwards. Yeah. And if you can demonstrate that through these capabilities, we can create an experience that's better than what exists today, again, I think the market will move. Yeah. And that's why I go back to, we need to build these use cases. I think our job as MX is to teach the use cases that can be built. And maybe we need certain cases, we need to build those use cases to be able to demonstrate those to people and work backwards and say, if you want to participate in those use cases, then you need to participate in our ecosystem. Right. right? And so, and it be customer driven. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, unless the customer shows up and says, I want something better, or we can demonstrate to a customer that it can be better, then I think the existing ecosystem is going to fall back on its, you know, historical paradigm, which is protect, protect, protect. Right. And we trade on cross-sell, interest rate margin, things yep. along those lines. And yep. we're happy if we, you know, you get 2% more than me and, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, and then I get 5% more. It's like on the margins. And so I think that's where I would start with. And I think where we started from a PayPal perspective of, I go back to that, you know, we demonstrated that you may not like us, yeah, but your customers seem to like us. Right. And the customers have a need to do this. Yeah. And whether you like it or not, they're going to keep doing this. Yeah. And eventually people come around to say, okay, it's okay. Sure. It's like, it's okay that this exists and let's do it in the most responsible way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, the other part I wanted to touch on, circling back to what you said about, you know, one of the reasons you joined MX was this sort of sense that, the industry is sort of rooting for MX. And a lot of people want MX to succeed, which I certainly feel personally. I guess it strikes me that a big part of partnerships, and you saw this firsthand doing this at PayPal and building partnerships with Visa and companies that not long before had maybe despised PayPal to a degree. What is just the role of like that sort of human relationship in terms of like making some of these things work? Because I think we tend to think about multi-sided networks and solving the cold start problem as like very much like academic exercises, but there's a human element to it too, right? Look, I, uh, I'm not here to go on a political rant, but I think that anyone should talk to anyone and you should always have good civil relationships with people and understand where people are coming from, yep. right? I think it just starts with discourse and understanding why you may not like what I do and I may not like what you do and here's why. Right. And just getting it out on the table. And I and what I found, you know, especially as we were navigating those early conversations, it was just be really candid on what the problems are. Mm. And we may think that you think that we're doing something and you may think that I'm doing something where we may not be doing it or we're doing it for all reasons that the underlying reason had nothing to do with anything. Sure. Other than that's the way we've always done it. And if we can provide a better way. And so really it is, again, this is like human relations 101. It's about discourse. It's about respect. It's about understanding customers as you go through this. And you're 100% right. It's, you know, you, you sort of said, hey, you know, people are rooting for this company. Yep. I think a lot of the reason why people are rooting for this company is that the company has been extremely respectful to the ecosystem. Yeah. Always had discourse. Always operated in a way that was respectful. 
and collaborated. Yeah. And I think if you get people working together, there's, I sometimes use this analogy. I use this analogy in payments. Um, and it's my Tony Soprano uh, line where, you know, they were arguing about garbage routes, right? Yeah. And he, guys, he says, guys, guys, because there's enough garbage for everyone. So why are we arguing? <laughs> and so I go back to my uh, payments and fintech world of saying, guys, there's enough volume. There's enough customers for everyone. Totally. If we just get our act together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that makes a lot of sense. And it's a good transition actually to um, last couple of things I wanted to ask you about, which is sort of looking into the future a bit. Obviously new in the role at MX, but I know you're already sort of making changes. I, there've been a couple of new leadership positions, uh, I think a CTO and a chief product officer. Can you sort of characterize like looking forward, what's the plan? Like where's MX going? What are you trying to position the company for as kind of the next phase? Like what's the opportunity you see ahead of you? Yeah, I think three things. In with Wes Hummel, who's coming as CTO, and Nandita Gupta as a CPO, they they bring this in spades to our organization. It's around great experiences that bring in innovation and scale. Okay. And I, I think we've all seen great innovation in a petri disc sure. or for one client. And yeah, you're like that's awesome, but it only works here. It's yeah. sort of the you know, someone called it the koala example. Koalas are great, but you only see them in Australia. Right, it's sort of right. Like, I only see it here. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we can bring to MX and we hope and, and syndicate, it's how do you take innovation, build great experiences on it, and then scale it. Yeah. And that's what I hope for the company. I hope people will look back in 5, 10, 20 years and say, hey, this is a company that understood its place in syndicating partnership around data, brought innovation to it, created great experiences on it, and, was, and made it a scalable solution. And with those two in particular, uh, I think they've done it for both of them, between the two of them for almost 35, 40 years yeah. in various capacities. And they know how to sort of deal with the scale piece. They know how to create great experience. And they know how to partner with the existing great folks that we have within MX and the, in the ecosystem that we have. And in many ways, I think it's an infusion. It's not a replacement. It's an mm -hmm. infusion of talent together to really go where we need to go. Got it. Awesome. I want to wrap up with this question, which is a question I always ask in this podcast, which is living in the world of sort of abundant fintech and fintech infrastructure, which I think has been great for a lot of things. I think one of the challenges that it presents for people who are building in financial services today is that you can always sort of get to the answer quickly, right? Like there's always an API or a tool you can use. And so I think a lingering question that a lot of folks have is, what is that source of sort of sustained competitive differentiation? Like how do we build a company that lasts and provides that value over a long time? So I'm curious, based on your experiences, both at PayPal and now at MX sort of charting out the future, what advice would you give to sort of a fintech founder who was just kind of early in that journey and starting to map out, like, where should I spend my time? Where should I build? Where should I buy? Like, how would you sort of coach them around the way to think about building that long-term differentiation? Another great question I go on for hours on this topic, <laughs> but, but I'll try to be as succinct as possible. Find a customer problem. Yep. Find that customer problem or where you can, a customer opportunity that you can make it better or completely break it and I, I'm going to tell something that you're going to think I'm crazy as I went through this. Huh. You know, we went through our, we have a product called Instant Account Verification. Sure. Right? So basically it allows you to validate that you really are Jim and you really have a Citibank account. Yep. Okay. And now I'm going to be disingenuous, but I'm going to say that at PayPal, I was leading a team that added about 60 million bank accounts 
a year in the US. And so I know the process very well. And I yeah. came here and I looked at the process and I said, I've seen that process now for five years and it takes four and a half minutes on average to go through. Sure. And wouldn't it be interesting, and I just said this and they, they all laugh. So maybe you all <laughs> laugh at me. I said, wouldn't it be interesting if literally I blinked or I clapped my hand and the bank account would be added. And, and it was just totally farcical. Yeah, yeah. But the reason why I've made a farcical example was you sometimes have to think about the problem in totally different paradigm than innovating on sort of like make it four and a half minutes down to four and a quarter and things like that. Right. Because what happens is, I read this story about the shipping industry, right? Yeah. And not, no, no, not a dig digression, but there's a boat, I think it was called the Thomas Larson. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the Thomas Larson was a seven mast ship, right? So it was a seven sails. Yep. And so the innovation within the shipping industry was, we started out with one mast. Yep. Then someone said, why don't we make two masts? Right. Then three, then four, then five, then six. And at seven, the uh, steam end, the steamboat, the other non-wind-powered boats came. Yep. And they were building the seventh mast. Yeah. And so why I say that is for anyone who's looking at a technological problem or trying to don't think about adding the seventh mast onto the ship. Yeah. Like, yeah, we could probably innovate on the edge here. Sure. Totally rethink what could be done to solve that problem differently. And I said, too, too often we're fighting over basis points or a tenth of a second of experience here. Yeah. Totally look at the problem differently. Yeah. And so that would be my main advice. And then I think that the second piece that I found is be prepared to disintermediate yourself. Like innovation only lasts three to five years. Yeah. And if you don't prepare to creatively destroy yourself, then someone else will. So I, I want to ask you just a little bit more about that last one, because yeah. I think that's such an interesting one, not only for early stage fintech companies and founders that are wrestling with sort of that initial problem of customer value and where the customer problem is, but for later stage companies, right? Because you see this play out a lot where there's an initial wedge that works really well, and then for whatever reason, it just sort of loses steam. And yeah. I think to your point, a lot of that relates back to, it's not that you don't know the customer problem, it's that you're become unwilling to change your business in ways that continue to address the customer problem in the best way, right? You've gotten good at adding sales to boats, getting rid of all that expertise and pivoting to steam power. That's like a scary thing yeah. to do. So, you know, I mean, maybe drawing on your experience at PayPal when you were kind of switching to that open ecosystem, what were those conversations like? Like, how do you make that case internally? What are some of the the challenges around doing that? Because I think, again, it goes back to a theme of this conversation, but like, that's also a very human-centric problem. It is. It, I remember it distinctly where we said, we're going to go to customer choice. And again, I, I sort of vividly described to you, I was traveling, I was at my mother's house, and I remember we, we had these meetings. Yeah. And I was sitting in the car in upstate New York. And I was sitting there, I guess we're really going to do this. Because there's like five of us that got together and said, we're going to do this. Yeah. And we knew we, like intellectually, if you were honest with yourself, sure. you'd sort of say, if I want this company to be on the side of the customer, this was a pain point, you had to do this. Yeah. And you then needed to bring the rest of the organization along with you. Yeah. And you have to have amazing conviction in terms of saying, this is the right thing to do. And in, in life, sometimes... I found at least life in business, people will overanalyze things to death. Yeah. Like it's like, all right, we need to measure everything as we go through. And I'm going to say that as a data company. As yeah. we go through. There are times when you have to just instinctively say, that is better than that. And I believe in it. Yeah. And the data may not prove it right now, but I believe the data will prove it in five years or five months or 50 years as we go through this. And we needed to take people on that journey. There are people that were vehemently against it. 
and even said, you know, the stock's going to be $10. It's going to be horrible. And, and when we announced it, the stock went down. I remember and, that. And yeah. People like I literally had people coming up to me and say, now I cannot buy my house totally. because of what you've done. Totally. And that's a pretty uh, stark that, moment absolutely. when your colleagues are saying that they can't live out their financial dreams because of a decision you've made. Yeah. And I said, okay, I understand that. But I think in the long run, it'll be the best for the company, our customers, and for you. And there are moments where you just have to have the clarity of conviction that that's the right thing to do. And I go back to, if you think like objectively, just ask yourself, is that the right thing to do for your customer? And if the answer is yes, it's the right thing to do. Amazing. We're going to leave it there. That's okay. a great place to end. Thank you so much well, thanks, for the time. It's great, great to be here. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more secrets to stand out in our crowded industry, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to hear the next episode first. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend? I'll see you next time.